Will he, won't he invade? This week, the whole world tried to guess Vladimir Putin's next moves regarding the ongoing crisis with Ukraine. While the US President Joe Biden was warning of an imminent war, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz flew to Moscow in yet another attempt to keep diplomacy alive. This week, I'm joined by Chris, Jamie and Paul. So as Russian troops moved forward into what looked like battle positions during the week's exercises, do you think an invasion can still be averted? Chris, do you want to kick off with that question? Uh, uh, yes, thank you. Good morning. I, I think given developments on the ground the last few days, I'm not so sure. Uh, we see Mr. Putin keep, keeping up the whole talk of genocide in the Donbass, and that tells me that really nothing's off the table for him right now. This also fits in with the Russian information operations, which have been setting conditions for the deployment of regular uh, Russian forces into the Donbass the last few months. And right now, over the last 24 hours, we're seeing that, that information campaign is really accelerating and intensifying. And it's almost completely unaffected by larger Western negotiations with Russia. So, for example, uh, the OSCE monitoring mission there uh, in Ukraine right now is receiving a, a spike in reported incidents along the line of contact of a verified shelling in the last several hours. Uh, we even have one report of sort of a, both sides blaming each other for shelling a kindergarten. Uh, but, and, you know, the actual number of ceasefire violations is, is usually um, pretty concentrated in a few areas, but right now it's pretty widespread, according to, to people who were there at the mission right now. So I think it's also important to remember back in 2008, when Russia was accusing Georgia of committing genocide against the Ossetian people, uh, and they use that as an, as an excuse to invade. So I think this kind of narrative is developing even further now with Russian claims of mass graves and reports in Russian media about, you know, uh, possible... Uh, Ukrainian attacks on the Donbass. So I think the position between the positioning of forces, some of the recent cyber attacks and this information campaign, you know, it sure looks like it's, uh, he's very postured to do something in the region. Um, but again, it's too early to tell. But I mean, I think if we're looking at brinksmanship, we're right on the brink. So what can we make then of the fact that um, the Russians did move some troops away from Crimea um, are these just, you know, tactical relocations? I mean, what do we what do we expect from that? What what sort of message is that giving us? Well, I think this is where you get into hybrid ambiguity. So, you know, it sort of confuses us, has us sort of chasing ourselves saying, you know, oh, these are it's very encouraging. Thank you so much, Mr. Putin. But if you look, you know, it's the difference between what show and tell. So uh, they'll tell us, they'll try to show us they're moving some forces out. But uh, I think numerous nations, even NATO itself, have not seen evidence of a, of a Russian withdrawal. I was looking at commercially available imagery last night that you know, now we're looking at Russian forces have increased to about 148,000 plus a lot of heavy equipment. Uh, and I think, again, let's go back to the Georgia playbook from 2008. Uh, and just before Russia invaded Georgia at that time, they, they kind of made a show of pulling some troops back. And at the time, the Western media sort of celebrated as a de-escalation. So I think we're seeing that pattern again. I think a real withdrawal would look like something more of a return of Russian forces to the posture they had in, say, September of this last year. And, I mean, if an attack would take place, uh, how would it unfold? Well, I think, again, I think we're in the we've been in the midst of a hyper campaign for some time uh, with Russian, Russian disinformation and a number of cyber attacks we've seen, uh, in particular, 48 hours ago in, in Ukraine, two large banks, uh, a number of the ministries were taken down. It's not clear right now if that was a state actor or, you know, some cyber hackers doing it. It was a, a denial of service attack, which, you know, frankly, it's not a very high tech thing to do. It doesn't require a state actor. Um, and, but I think what's happened 
I think if, if Russia does decide to invade uh, even farther than they did in 2014, I think we'll see at first a major cyber attack to cripple uh, Ukrainian communications and energy links. We'd see an air and missile campaign to destroy the, the very small-ish uh, Ukrainian air force on the ground to include those, those Turkish drones they have. Uh, and then, you know, we would see them also use sort of an air and missile attack to destroy military infrastructure and key capabilities. It may stop at that. It may be just that. However, a lot of the indications we're seeing, if there was anything beyond that, it would be a ground assault, most likely um, in the Donbass region led by sort of heavy artillery. I mean, remember, the Russian army is and always has been an artillery army. They like to sort of pound you with artillery to freeze you in place so they can maneuver around. Uh, we would see that in eastern Ukraine. I doubt we'd see anything coming from northern Ukraine. Uh, but I think if that happens, it'll, overall, it'll be a limited incursion. I don't think that Russia has sufficient forces to sort of attack and occupy the whole of Ukraine. And I think also a partial attack, um, you know, that retains the visible capability to go farther, increases the pressure on NATO in the West to meet some of Putin's demands. So in, in many ways, it's like a hostage situation where he maintains the maximum leverage to negotiate. And in many ways, we're in a hostage situation already. But I think if he sort of tries to take the whole of Ukraine um, it'll, it'll trigger a much, much stronger reactions and you'll have a much more united NATO. So I think a, if he decides to attack, a partial incursion would apply that pressure and he could still get a lot of what he wants. So just a few thoughts there. I just I, I don't I think if there is an invasion of any kind, I don't see a wholesale invasion. You, you touched already on NATO. I want to bring Jamie in um, here. Um, Jamie, are the forces that NATO allies um, have sent to the eastern flank are they mostly for political signaling um, right now, or do do they have a real military um, purpose? And how likely um, are they to be permanent or temporary? And what further NATO reinforcement can we expect in the next weeks? Uh, yeah, well, Tracy, uh, I think uh, you can do both. You can have both uh, an effective military response, but which is also uh, a useful political uh, uh, signal. Um, I think that NATO has realised for some time, even before the current uh, crisis between Russia and Ukraine, that it was a little bit thinly stretched uh, on its eastern flank uh, with, uh, for example, just a four uh, battalions, multinational battalions in the Baltic states and Poland, um, some air presence, some maritime presence down uh, in the Black Sea region, but but no really real permanent land presence there uh, at a time when Russia was becoming active on multiple fronts, including in the high north uh, and also on the eastern Mediterranean. Um, and I think uh, each of these successive Russia-Ukraine crises, uh, whatever the outcome, invasion or not invasion, is it, bringing uh, uh, Russian forces closer to NATO. They're now in Belarus. Will they leave? <laughs> That's what we wait to see. Uh, they're leaving a lot of equipment behind uh, each time, uh, a lot of uh, uh, stores, uh, ammunition, command and control, so that they can bounce back um, very quickly. Uh, as I said, putting pressure potentially on NATO on multiple fronts. And I think most worrying of all for NATO, really decreasing the warning time. I mean, back in 2014, it was okay for NATO to have four uh, rather small battalions, uh, in the Baltic states and Poland because the assumption was that it would take several months uh, for Russia to amass forces to threaten a NATO member state. Uh, the forces were still relatively far away 
and that would give NATO time to bring reinforcements back over the Atlantic. So military mobility, the ability to move forces quickly across Europe, was the name of the game. But I think NATO now realises that without going back to a Cold War posture, I mean, we're not talking about 300-odd thousand uh, American troops in Europe uh, here, uh, but NATO needs nonetheless to beef up uh, it, its presence. Uh, you already see um, uh, yesterday at NATO's uh, Defence Minister's meeting the proposal for four additional uh, multinational national battalions uh, to be uh, in the Black Sea region. France has offered to lead one in Romania. NATO plans will now work out the practicalities of whether the other three go to Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, who's going to lead them, all, all of those kind of things. Uh, but you also see, of course, a number of NATO countries, the United States, the UK, Norway, the Netherlands, Germany, sent um, reinforcements temporarily um, to the Baltics and to Poland. So I think I suppose the question is, is really, will those temporary deployments, for example, 6,000 American troops, turn into permanent deployments? How many extra sort of battle groups will NATO station in the east? Um, will it sort of beef up its uh, store, stores of equipment? Will it introduce more armor? It's pretty thin in that domain. Uh, it needs to look at air defense, which is also quite thin in Central and Eastern Europe. But Tracy, final word, the whole uh, issue for NATO will be to reinforce its defense and deterrence in a credible military way, but without sort of going so far uh, that it plays into Putin's playbook that this is all about a threat from NATO, NATO moving closer to Russia, NATO wanting to put missiles in Ukraine uh, and all of that. So I think, you know, finding the right balance here between uh, deterring Russia, but also reassuring Russia uh, that NATO is still a defensive alliance. That's going to be uh, the, uh, the, key, the key issue here. And what about some EU countries? Um, how can they support Ukraine and help prevent an attack from happening? I mean, is it not now time to put demands uh, for de-escalation towards Putin rather than continue to visit him and listen to his wish list while he continues to point guns at us under the table? Well, uh, uh, Putin, of course, has been offered a number of so-called off-ramps, to use the American uh, terminology, over the past few weeks. You know, the prospects of uh, uh, arms control talks with uh, NATO uh, to deal with some of the traditional Russian complaints about transparency, about exercises, about forces close to borders, about missile deployments. NATO, of course, in a kind of mirror image, Tracy, has exactly the same complaints about Russia. So arms control talks through in the interests of both sides. And, and frankly... Uh, Putin over the last couple of days has warmed up to the idea. Uh, he was a little bit sceptical at first, but he now is talking also about arms control talks uh, with the West. Uh, reassurances that NATO is not about to uh, put uh, NATO uh, weapons uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, if Russia continues to threaten Ukraine, many NATO allies like the US, the UK, you see this at the moment, will continue to want to uh, give uh, weapons to Ukraine, which could help it obviously to improve its armed forces and, and hopefully also then deter Russia. You know, the, the, the stronger the Ukrainian army, uh, the higher the price for the Russians of, of an invasion. Uh, there's also, of course, uh, the prospect of avoiding sanctions like on Nord Stream 2, uh, which is a crucial economic asset uh, for uh, Russia as well. And then starting tracing, we don't quite know where yet in in Vienna at the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe or in the NATO-Russia Council or in other uh, fora, 
uh, talks about the future of the European security architecture. You know, the, the, the problem is, is that the Russians don't like the Western vision uh, of an expanding alliance system, uh, and the West doesn't like the Russian vision of a return to czarist 19th century spheres of influence. So somewhere in the middle, uh, pragmatically, we're going to have to sort of work out some kind of modus, modus vivendi with the Russians on the future European secu security architecture. Um, this is going to be painful, but it's going to be necessary, because otherwise, you know, even if Putin de-escalates. We're simply going to rumble on from crisis to crisis. And as Chris Kremides rightly pointed out, it's okay, you know, stopping strangling somebody. But if you simply remove your hand one inch down his throat, uh, still applying pressure, and you can re-strangle any time, uh, the crisis hasn't really uh, finished. Thank you, Jamie. Um, Paul, if I may just bring you in here. Um, obviously, this week, we've seen more diplomatic talks um, with the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, going to visit uh, President Putin in Moscow. Uh, did his visit achieve anything except perhaps keeping lines of diplomacy open? Um, well, I, first of all, I think that, that there is really a diplomatic process underway already. And uh, you've seen Russia responding to that. So I'm a little bit, uh, a tad less uh, uh, alarmed, let's say, than, than my colleagues about, about this. I, I mean, I, I'm Obviously, you, one's still looking for genuine signs of de-escalation rather than uh, pictures of a couple of tanks on uh, on a train. But um, the the you know what what what's been going on essentially is that a series of Western leaders have delivered fairly clear messages to Russia as to what it faces if it does take military action. At the same time, they've been giving openings, and one of the key signals that we've heard this week which came from uh, um, Chancellor Scholz, both in Kiev and in Moscow, and with the at least concurrence of uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, is to say, look, why are we having this crisis when Ukrainian NATO membership is not on the agenda anytime soon? He repeatedly used that term, not on the agenda. President Zelensky described uh, NATO membership as a dream and said he recognized it might not happen for a long time. So the message that's being put across to Russia is, look, we're not actually planning to take in Ukraine and Georgia for the foreseeable future. Um, and now let's talk about the practicalities of uh, rules of the road for our conduct, uh, for our deployments, transparency, arms control, missiles, all of the things and, and, and crisis communications, military to military communications, hotlines, all of these sorts of things. And there are signs that Russia is interested in getting into such a process. President Putin uh, uh, himself said so. Um, his foreign minister Lavrov said so repeatedly. The Russians had a sort of, you know, very, very theatrical presentation of this on television in a meeting between Putin and Lavrov. Now, you can say that might have been that might all be a decoy uh, for some forthcoming military operation when the West uh, West's attention has been uh, somehow turned. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, I think you have a clear division of labor on the Western side, where you have both uh, uh, President Macron and Chancellor Scholz going to Moscow and making uh, uh, giving these signals of uh, a sort of diplomatic openness and a, a willingness clearly to put Ukrainian membership aside 
uh, of NATO aside for a pro prolonged period. And at the same time, the United States and the UK using a form of sort of, you know, preemptive denunciation, essentially, uh, uh, um, you know, keeping, uh, uh, denouncing each day uh, in detail, sharing a lot of intelligence uh, with the public, which in normal crises, in past crises, has not been shared. Um, so that's a new tactic that's being used in this information war on the Western side. Uh, the United States and the, and, 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 and the UK are doing this, partly, I think, for domestic reasons, in President Biden's case, to, to, to try and sort of erase the memory of the, 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 the American pullout under uh, fire from Afghanistan, uh, by, which was very chaotic, by trying to show that they are already moving people out of Ukraine. The Ukrainians don't like that. They think this is bad signaling, in fact, uh, that Western embassies are uh, moving back uh, away from the capital and to, uh, to Lviv, or that uh, uh, the West is so urgently encouraging its citizens to leave Ukraine. Um, this doesn't send a good signal as far as President Zelensky and his government are concerned. Um, but I think, you know, you've got that on the one hand, but you also have constant consultation several times a week between President Bi Presidents Biden, Macron, Chancellor Schultz, uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Johnson, Prime Minister, uh, 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 the Italian Prime Minister as well. And all of this, I think that, you know, they are playing a sort of good cop, bad cop role in this, which is coordinated. Um, and I think the message getting to Moscow must be, um, you know, there are other options and, and taking military action in Ukraine will be very costly. And there's no sign yet that President Putin has taken a decision to go for military action. Uh, the signs that we're seeing are that he's decided to give uh, diplomacy some more time. Okay, that's interesting. I want to um, stay with you for a moment, Paul, um, because obviously while uh, Chancellor Schultz was talking with Putin, um, the Russian Duma voted in favor of recognizing the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic regions in Ukraine occupied by pro-Russian separatists and military supported by Moscow. What does this mean going forward? I mean, is there a risk that Putin um, sends troops into these regions and possibly even beyond to the Dnieper or the Black Sea? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that it gives him an extra lever in this, in, 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 in this sort of uh, tug of war with the West, because um, now it's clear that at any time he could say, well, I'm listening to Russian public opinion, I'm listening to what people in the region want, and I'm going to recognize these. But recognizing these uh, regions, which are essentially Russian puppets, um, as independent, you know, doesn't actually give him much. You know, they were, they were basically, you know, Russian, Russia's problem anyway. Their economies are in bad shape. Uh, they've lost a lot of their population. Uh, hundreds of thousands of the residents of, Dom, of these regions in Donbass have already been given Russian passports. So they are actually Russian citizens. And he's recognizing them as independent. That in itself might be a prelude to those so-called independent statelets then requesting uh, uh, to rejoin the Ru Russian motherland. Um, but, you know, all he would be doing essentially would be, you know, own the problem more publicly than he has been up to now. Whether he sends troops in or not, 
Um, I, I think, you know, that there's no particular need for more Russian troops in there in the sense that there were already Russian proxies, uh, probably uh, Russian privateers and poss quite possibly Russian special forces already in their region and they've been armed by Russia. So, you know, sending troops in would be kind of signaling, but it would also raise the cost for Russia. It would incur sanctions. He might be able to achieve what he wants without sanctions and without sending in troops. Jamie, Chris, is there anything you want to um, add on this uh, recent vote in the Duma? Uh, no, I, I think Paul has called it well. I mean, in, in a way, you know, there's no real interest for Putin to annex uh, uh, the Donbass in the way that he has the, the Crimea. Because, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of decades with the so-called frozen conflicts in Europe, you know, the situations, for example, between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh, the situation in Georgia, of course, with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, or in Moldova with the region of Trans. Nistra, is that Putin quite quite likes open sores or bleeding wounds that never uh, cicatrize. Um, that's to say that, uh, you know, he can play on both sides. He, he's got a lever. Uh, if, for example, if Donbass joined Russia, then uh, Putin can no longer interfere in the constitutional debates about the future of Ukraine. And he, his interest at the moment seems to be uh, to sort of try to follow the so-called Minsker process, whereby uh, the, Dom, uh, the Donbass would get some kind of you know, confederal decentralized status uh, in, in Ukraine, but it been in such a way that it would be a kind of Russian bridgehead permanently ensconced in Ukrainian politics, which could be then used as a kind of blocking vote uh, on any uh, sort of big change, for example, Ukraine moving closer to NATO. So, you know, the Russians uh, often feel that keeping problems alive uh, suits their foreign policy more than by a black and white sort of solution of trying to solve them. Chris, I bring you in here. <laughs> no, no, just uh, thank you. I, I'm just agreeing with with Paul and Jamie, and I think it's you know to sum it up, it's it's that to remember that Vladimir Putin is a bargain shopper when it comes to influence and interstate aggression. He never overpays for influence. Uh, he, he's very he's very thrifty, uh, and in this case, as as Paul rightly pointed out, with for what reason would he want to march? regular troops into the Donbass unless he had some other goal in mind. And so, I mean, essentially, if he's going to get a lot of what he wants, keep the area messy so that it's, it's um, you know, weak and dependent on the outside uh, and, and keep them in a state where they are, they can't, they couldn't apply for NATO membership because you, know, you can't take in a NATO member that already has foreign troops on its soil. It's just, you know, it's an Article 5 situation from the start, as Paul also pointed out in his Black Sea report, right? So we know that. And so I think it's just remember, don't expect Putin to overpay for his influence. He's a bargain shopper. He always has been. I don't see that changing. It's interesting. I mean, a lot can happen in a week, as we've already seen since we um, recorded the last podcast last week. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of escalation talking of, of uh, being on the brink of war. Um, just a final word from, from the three of you. Um, what, what can we expect in this next week going forward? More diplomacy. <laughs> I think you know, diplomacy has not run its course. The West has an obvious interest in stringing this out as long as they can. The longer they can string it out without military action, the more difficult it becomes for Russia, both on the ground where the, uh, the snow will melt and you know, to sustain that kind of posture in the field. And uh, you know, diplomatically, uh, Russia is not gaining new allies in this thing. 
and NATO's uh, unity has been perhaps a surprise to Russia. Uh, and the European Union's unity, uh, I think we'll see more of today when uh, EU leaders have a brief uh, mini summit on the issue of Ukraine. And I think that, you know, those who were in the West who were screaming that the French were going on their own Gaullist way or that the Germans were going neutral and were, were you know, letting us down and so on. Actually, um, if they look carefully, what's been going on uh, has been a process of um, unification of the West. And uh, we don't spontaneously all start from the same position. But who would have thought six months ago, three months ago, that France would be sending troops to Romania and that France would be the lead nation, the framework nation for that, to strengthen NATO's eastern flank. You know, France's attention was largely focused on Sahel, where they've announced today a repositioning and a withdrawal of their forces from Mali over the coming months. Um, and, you know, France was really not keen at all to get involved uh, uh, on the eastern front with Russia more than they already are as a junior partner. Uh, in the uh, forward presence in Estonia. So these are things which are actually happening that are strengthening uh, NATO's unity, somewhat to the surprise, I think, of a lot of observers after the Afghanistan debate. But President Putin may have uh, inadvertently, um, by miscalculation, have, uh, have re resurrected NATO in some ways and shot himself in the foot. Uh, yeah, Jake Tracy, I know is we brief final words. Uh, I think that you know, the, the challenge is on two fronts. I mean, obviously, as Paul rightly said, we've got to continue the diplomacy. We're not out of the woods yet. That, that's clear in terms of any serious Russian de-escalation. Um, uh, we've got to preserve that front of unity and try you know, to go back to at least a, a status quo situation with the Russian forces not posing this immediate invasion threat. But I think now, increasingly, at the same time, we've got to get out of short-term crisis reaction mode and start doing some serious long-term thinking as the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg said yesterday we're dealing with a new reality here and that means first of all you know what is going to be the future shape of NATO uh, deterrence and defense um, that's going to have to be beefed up and it's going to require commitments and troops and money uh, from the NATO members so the budget debates will inevitably come back as well, particularly between Americans and Europeans. Secondly, we've got to think seriously if Ukraine is not joining NATO immediately, and it never was, I totally agree with Paul on that, what can we do to make this state more resilient against a permanent invasion, if you like, uh, psychological propaganda, cyber, uh, Chris described that very well, that the country is, 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 is facing. Thirdly, uh, if the Russians are interested in arms control talks, that's our best off-ramp. How can we get them started in a way that corresponds to the interests in both sides? And I think finally, you know, particularly after the gas debate and the uh, hiking gas prices, um, we're going to have to have a serious talk about reducing our dependency uh, on Russia, which then gives it uh, leverage. Uh, for example, a few years ago, the EU uh, Commission came out with its third energy package where the goal was to reduce by half uh, the dependency of the EU on Russian gas, which then was 40%. Very fine ambitions. Today, it's over 50%. It's gone up rather than down. Um, uh, and therefore, diversification, supply chains, resilience, all of these kind of things are going to come back on the agenda. Uh, because if we leave ourselves vulnerable, uh, Putin obviously will uh, have uh, levers and he knows how to use them. Mm -hmm. Chris, final words, what we can expect. Thank you. 
No, thank you. I think, uh, you know, Paul and, and Jamie, as, as, as usual, have, have uh, done a great job and haven't left much to be said, but I'll, I'll say this. And I think it is uh, that maintaining strategic patience and internal NATO and EU dialogue among leaders is going to be critical because the state we're in now and the state where I think we're going to be for a few weeks is that state of hybrid ambiguity uh, that keeps the pressure on. And I think our default desire for stability and predictability kind of drives us to sort of settle th for things before, uh, you know, settle for something less than what we could have gotten. And I think that's why, you know, if, if Putin's going to be a bargain shopper for influence, then I think we need to be a stingy shopkeeper and uh, maintain our strategic uh, patience and maintain our unity. That's all I have for now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Um, I'd like to thank you all, um, all my speakers, Jamie Shea, Paul Taylor and Chris Kremidis for joining me today. Um, keep abreast of the latest developments on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Join us next week for the Frankly Speaking special on Russia-Ukraine. Thank you.